Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7, 365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears and open heart and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.gene. During today's program, you will hear AA mentioned multiple times. The individual expressing their thoughts and opinions do not reflect AA or Al-Anon as a whole. Please enjoy. I, I can't get these memories out of my mind And some kind of madness is started to evolve. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show! My name is Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Vandenhavel, but most people just call me Nick. And this is my show, Authentic. Get it? Instead of tick, I added Nick, because I'm authentic. Okay, whatever. And with me, as always, (laughs) is my dog, Marla. Marla! Come here, baby. Say hello to all of our listeners. She's the brick house. All right, that's... That's enough, Marla. Go back to saving us from bunnies. Anyway, here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. What do I mean by that? All things recovery. Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. On some level, in some way. Mm-hmm. This is my intro, so shut the fuck up, Mike. Oh. Anyway, I'm going to fuck up your show. You, yes, you (laughs) are in recovery from something. As for me, I'm in recovery from alcoholism. My name is Nick, and I am most certainly an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I have an eating disorder. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have bipolar disorder. Really? The list could go on and on forever. Good news for you. This show today is not about me. It is, however, about two people. First is my guest, Irish Mike. Second is the one person that Irish Mike is most certainly going to help by giving his testimony today. Michael will share his experience, strength, and hope as it pertains to his recovery. Without further ado, Irish Mike, please introduce yourself in any way you see fit, sir. Well, um... I guess uh, to the listeners out there in the great wide interwebs world out there. Jigach Mokaradinua, I guess more, is Sha 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 Tommy Tommy. Oh, sorry. Is Mishe Mihal an Edenact? I guess Sha Ta an alcoholicus? Me. What I just said to you all is God bless you all or hello um, and thank you to all you out there. And my name is Michael, Irish Mike, and I am indeed an alcoholic. 
So there you go. I dug it. Dug it. What the fuck gibberish were you just spitting? That was Irish Gaelic. Irish Gaelic. Mm-hmm. And why do you call yourself Irish Mike? Just wondering. Is it because of that stupid fucking accent you're faking? <laughs> well, you know, no, we could be talking about the Irish people now and putting on the sing-song kind of a voice or no, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you are from Ireland, ladies and gentlemen. He is not an imposter. He is indeed straight up off the boat. Mike, why are you here tonight? I am here because Authentic invited me to be here. Say it right. It's Authentic. Authentic. There. Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> why are our, you here? Fucker? Our little anal retentive friend here <laughs> <laughs> uh, has, has invited me to be here. Nick, thank you so much. Like I said to you. Uh, before here. Thank you very much. It's really is an honor to be here, and I really, really appreciate being here on your show and having the ability to share my experience, strength, and hope. I'll have you know, Irish Mike is the reason that I'm doing this show right now. Sorry, folks. So, long story short, I was basically, no, not basically, I was fucking suicidal, and I threw up my hands. I was talking to Michael. He was trying to guide me through my life and give me some experience, strength, and hope, and I said, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm a fucking janitor, and I'm never going to amount to anything, and I just want to perform for people. I don't know. Maybe I'll just do radio. And Irish Mike (laughs) leans across the table, and he says to me, well, you know what, Nick? I know somebody at KFAI Community Radio. Is it okay if I give you her number. Is it okay if I give her your number? That's how I did it. Correct. And I said, yes. So I met up with Lydia Howell, who does The Catalyst, which airs on Fridays at 11 a.m. here on KFAI Community Radio, 90.3 FM, Minneapolis, and 106.7 FM, St. Paul Radio Without Boundaries. So Michael hooked me up with KFAI, hooked me up with Lydia Howell. I became a volunteer here. I got certified on the soundboard. I did a few shows and And I became a podcaster, and here we are. From the bottom of my heart, Michael, Irish Mike, thank you. Well, you know, experience, strength, and hope is what we're supposed to do, right? And and, and by the way, folks, just for the record, and you can edit this out if you need to, I'm quite okay with that. Just for those of you out there in the great uh, interwebs world, um, I am indeed Nick's sponsor. And God help me and God help him. We'll be talking about that in just a little bit. And to all of you all out there in the interweb world, if you think I need to make an amends to you because of having this crazy lunatic on the air now. (laughs) Sorry, go talk to your sponsor about it. Okay. Enough of the bullshit. Let's get down to business, Mike. You're here because you are an alcoholic in recovery and you wish to help someone. Yes. Well, actually, I'll rewind that. And I am here because, and this is going to be part of what we're going to be talking about when we get to the uh, the hope part of this little show, is that when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was told some things by those mean old bastard old timers, and I love those mean old bastard old timers. And they said that in the recovery program, you're not allowed to say no when you're asked something, unless you have a legitimate reason, like you have to go to work, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a spiritual principle. If you're there to reach out to help somebody else, you're not allowed to say no unless you have a legitimate reason to not do it. That is why I'm here. It's because I was asked, and that's the principle that I have been taught by. These principles that we're going to be talking about have served me very, very well on so many levels and in so many ways. We're going to be talking about that. Who and what I was then versus who I was in early recovery, absolutely fucking nuts, for the record. And we're going to be talking about that, too. It's called meth-induced, meth and alcohol-induced psychosis, by the way, just so you all know. The best way I can put this is, is a fully functioning, somewhat mentally healthy um, human being who is um, somewhat spiritually on track. Let's just put it that way. We'll get to that in about an hour. 
About an hour. Gotcha. For right now, I'd like to start at the beginning. Okay. What made Irish Mike Irish Mike? What was your childhood like? Oh, okay. Well, okay. So, um, and this part, Nick, you may not know about because I always talk about you know being from Ireland, and I am from Ireland. But so here's the story: my mother and father were both raised very, very poor Catholics in Northern Ireland, in the north of Ireland, in the very, I think, I believe the mid '50s to late '50s. They actually moved to America. Yeah, you don't know. I was born here. I'm an American. Shut the fuck up. You didn't know that, did you? I tell everybody that you were straight up off the boat, that you came here for recovery. Well, I did. That's part of the story. I was born here. And I was born here in America. I was born actually in the, in the east side of San Jose. Very, very rough area in San Jose. Standard American story of this is where the immigrants go, where they start to start off, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, my father who had... We could talk... A little bit of politics, that's okay, So, because there's no traditions of being broke here with this. My father had been involved in the civil rights movement here in the United States, in, here in America, because um, as a Catholic from Northern Ireland, he understood the, the issues that were going on and racism, hatred, bigotry, et cetera, et cetera. So he got involved in the civil rights movement here in the U.S. And I say this very proudly, um, that he was actually doing this way in the 50s like way before it was cool and chic and all the trendy folks were doing it. When the civil rights movement for Catholics exploded on the streets in, in Northern Ireland, my man went, I've got experience of this. I have to go home. And so he br- moved our whole family out there. Actually, we were, our initial was in County Tyrone, and which is where he's from. And then uh, we then shortly moved after that to uh, County Armagh. But for miles southwest of Belfast, a place called Craig Avenue. Long story short, I ended up staying there for the vast majority of the part there until I got back here to America in 1984. And that's part of my bottom we're going to be talking about. And then shortly after that, about a year after that, I got into uh, recovery, started this uh, this adventure of spiritual recovery. There's the story that you don't know about. That is the story I don't know about. Yeah. And that's also the story that nobody else knows about that's listening to this other than maybe your wife. The wife knows that. There, no, there's some other people know that. Okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. Mike, when did you have your first drink or drug? I don't know. You don't know? Ask me when was the first time I had a drink of whiskey. That's a very, very different question. I... Probably when I was when I was young. By the way, we should start off with the fact that <clears throat> Mao Man. The other part about him is that Mao Man was 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 and God rest him, he's, he's in peace now. He's up, up at the boss right now. Him and my mother both are. My father was a good decent man when he was sober, and when he wasn't sober, which was a lot, um, he was a real shithead. He was a very violent man. I've been told stories. I don't. I can't remember any of these stories growing up as a child with Mao Man. It's all gone. I've been in recovery and you know what, therapy. What do you mean by that? It's all gone. It's there's no memory. None. You have zero memories. Zero memories of growing up as a child. None. Well, then at what age do you have your first memory? Well, I have some very faint memories, but nothing around my family. It's just, you know, with my friends and stuff in, in America. My first real memories start when my old man had sent my mother and us to Ireland first. He, he was working the patches for us to get back to Ireland. About a year after that, he showed up back in, in, in Ireland. That's when things just went to shit in the family which we're going to be talking about. My memories as, as, a, as a child in my family are non-existent. I've been told stories. The kind of stories I've been told by other family members who are now also in recovery. Apparently, my man, when he was, when he was get drunk, when he get loaded, he was very, very violent. He would beat my mother a lot. Apparently, he used to beat her to a bloody pulp on a regular basis. I've been told stories about he would, like, get drunk out of his mind, come to our, our little apartment in Mountain View, California, and he would then lock us kids in the closet in the bedroom 
while he beat the shit out of my mother. He never beat us, but he did beat her, um, apparently, on a very, very regular basis. I have no memories of this whatsoever. Again, in recovery and also therapy long enough to know that's a huge, big old red flag that stuff wasn't so good. So that was myself growing up as a child. Why do you think he never beat you? Good question. I think I got a pretty good answer for that. He actually did beat me once, but that was a whole other conversation. My grandmother, his mother, asked him to beat me because I'd done something. But anyway, I think just knowing what I know about my old man, and I love and adore my old man, and while at the same time having a very confused, convoluted relationship with this violent, abusive man who will also beat up my mother, but also love and respecting him for who he was as a man and because of his politics, which is a whole nother conversation. I think knowing my old man and knowing who and what I am as a human being, growing up with this very, 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 very fucked up idea of what it means to be male and not thinking that you fit that role model and don't thinking that you fit that idea of being male. So you will then act out in a violent way to kind of assert your own sense of being a male, a man. It's a very, very fucked up way of looking at the world. And, and I looked at that world that way myself when I was growing up. And that's also part of my story. But I think probably he was just kind of trying to assert himself as being the, the quote, dominant male, because that's what males are supposed to do. They're supposed to dominate. I think that's probably why he beat her and didn't beat us. I would think that beating you would hurt her more. Oh, it probably would have. And again, I don't think it was a matter of, of wanting to hurt her per se. It was more a matter of, well, first of all, as every alcoholic knows, when you're loaded, you do stuff, which is part of my personal bottom, is that you do stuff when you're drinking that you would never do sober. And I think part of it was getting past that inhibition of, of beating another person, beating uh, your wife. And so again, asserting your own sense of being a male. Because I've never had this conversation with with my old man yet I lived with him for many many years in between times of if he was gone he was kicked out of the house that's to be part of the story I lived with him for a large number of years can we talk politics on this thing you can talk about whatever the fuck you want cool okay just no C word no 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 well, we do have a good C word story but we'll talk about that I lived with my old man my old man was amongst the other things was he was uh, and I can say this now because he's dead now I could never say this in public until not, until this time my father what I'm very proud to say was a very active member of Oakland Haddon which uh, you all know is the Irish Republican Army he was uh, actually on the run from the authorities from 1973, I believe, until, well, basically until the day he died. He was on the run from the authorities. I lived with him for a large number of years because I was also on the run from the authorities which is part of the story. And so I lived with him for a long period of time. I got to know him quite well. I loved my man, loved my old man, while also understanding that he was a very, very flawed human being and had a lot of emotional and spiritual weaknesses. And that was a part of it. At what age do you start actually having memories? Like, where does where does Irish oh. Mike's life begin? It's kind of blowing my mind because you say you don't have any memories of most people. The day, start... we, the day we came to Ireland because my old man wasn't there. And at what age was that? Ten, yeah. So fifth grade in... I don't know. I don't I like, know what. I like going by grades. I don't, grades don't mean a goddamn thing to me. Well, that's how I make reference. Primary one, primary two. Shut up, you old Irish fuck. Yeah, well, there you go then. <laughs> Age ten. Age ten. Where were you at? It was initially it was in a, a, a place called Kill Island. It was my mother's my mother's mother's home, her father's home, granny and grandma's house in Kill Island County, Tyrone. That's where my mother was from. My father was from the town right next door to it, uh, uh, Dungan. So we lived with my granny for a little while until we were able to get a house in a. Oh God, Lord! It was a a, a social experiment city, and the British government was trying to figure out what to do with the poor folk. Is what it really boiled down to. How are we going to manage the poor folk? And so they built this. It turned out to be an un 
unmitigated disaster of a city called Craig Avenue. I love Craig Avenue. Craig Avenue is my home. It is the very epitome of complete fucked upness on so many levels. They built the city, and in essence, they, they built the city because they needed workers to work on the Goodyear tire plant, where my old man ended up getting the job. And then they closed the fucking plant down, and the city died. And then it was just large fucking, basically, well, you guys call them uh, projects. We call them housing estates. It was a gigantic- It's a much nicer word. Yeah, it does sound so much nice. Housing so much, is so much more. Is there a man-made lake there? There is see, a man-made lake I there. I see swans and yes, serenity. Yes, yes. Maybe a weeping willow. A weeping. There was well, there was a lot of weeping, but not very many fucking willows. <laughs> what was home life like? I actually was pretty happy, although we did have the war, which was a whole other part of the conversation. We were right in the middle of of the conflict, which then erupted in in the north northern part, part of Ireland, northeastern um, occupied counties of Ireland. So we had the war, which we had to contend with, and that's a part of what we're going to be talking about, or civil conflict, or whatever term you want to use. Low intensity conflict is another word I've heard used. Terrorism is another word I've used. I've heard used, but. Anyway, uh, we had we had the the conflict going on in the north, and that was a real back strengthening sort of experience. Don't sugarcoat that shit. No, no, no. You you you. you it was like shit. You got to do. If you don't, you die. You know. You learned to be able to think and act in that sort of a way. Helped me as a human being as I got later on in life. Helped me to develop me as to who I am, what I am as a human being. And I'm very very happy for that experience. But it was not always so good. People died. Bombs, bullets, bullets hitting your house. Soldiers in the streets beating you up, you know, death squads, lots of death squads in my neighborhood. The part of of, our, of Ireland I was in that was actually what was called the uh, three corners of the murder triangle, where the death squad activities were at its highest. The main one that we had in our area was uh, the UVF and then the LVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Loyalist Volunteer Force. Give you that as a perfect example. Let's talk about this for a minute. A little sidetrack on, on our discussion. My brother's best friend's father, man called, I used to I used to say this, but I'm about to tell you, completely deadpan, no emotion whatsoever. It was just a series of facts I'm going to be giving you. I've gotten past that. Other things I've done with it as well, like the cop came blowing up, I used to do that too. I've actually, I, I know they are now emotional stuff. They're not just fact-driven, dry statistics I'm about to give you. Felix Hughes was my brother's, uh, Brian's best friend's father. Um, he was a um, father, I believe they had seven kids. He was a Catholic in our area, and he was um, one day captured by um, a gang of Protestants. The death squad stuff I was telling you about. Let's see, they slit his throat, they gouged out his eyes, they uh, cut off his testicles, he stuffed his testicles into his mouth, they then hung him from the bridge downtown in downtown Portadown, which is the town right next to us. Turns out that later on, that it turns out that he was still alive. The, the inquest showed that. They were still alive, so they, since he was still alive, they put him into the Bound River, which is the the, the um, river that the bridge is going over, and put a mattress over him, weighted down rocks, and, and killed the man. The young man who got this is, again, this is Northern Ireland, so the north of Ireland. Um, the five young men that were that were caught doing this uh, got six months because we're Catholics. doesn't matter. We're not so important. So those sorts of dynamics, which is what part of drove the whole civil rights movement going on in Northern Ireland, which is based exactly, and I mean directly upon, the uh, civil rights movement here in the United States for, for blacks in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. A lot of very, very, very... Very, very similar dynamics growing up. Um, that's the kind of environment I grew up in. I've had friends who have been tortured. I've had, they used to capture a young Catholic kid, and they would use, we call them Stanley knives. You guys call them um, box cutters. Box cutters. They'd use box cutters to carve on the names of the death squads onto your body. So they did that a lot. Sometimes they die, sometimes they wouldn't. But sometimes they'd come into a pub and shoot the pub up with, you know, automatics, or they'd blow it up with the, with the bomb or stuff with the express purpose of we're going to try and kill as many Catholics as we can. And no sort of like, um, there was no sort of like, we're going to kill IRA men. It was like any Catholic will do. They have a, a term, K A T, which means uh, kill all tags. 
and that is the for the American understanding of the word, it'd be like saying kill all It's literally those sorts of dynamics. So that's what I grew up with as a child. So when you ask me how was my childhood growing up, it was a blast. I had a lot of fun <laughs> with some bad shit in between. With some bad shit in between. Yeah, yeah. So at some point, you started drinking. I started drinking probably around the age of 10 or 11. I was actually a late starter in my neighborhood. Most of the kids in my neighborhood started drinking at 70 at 9. I was a late, a late bloomer, and I first and I started smoking right around the same time. And like I say, you know, I, I drank beer and, and wine and cider. That was the big thing to, to drink back then. I and mean, I kind of have remember it, remember it, and I have memories of, you know, but I don't remember the exact day or time or, you know, that sort of stuff. However, the very first day I drink whiskey is the day I will never, ever, 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 ever forget. And I hope and pray to God I never do forget that day. I was about, I think about 14. My best friend, Terry, Terry Edwards. Terry and Shami and Tony and I um, were used to hang out together. It was a rough neighborhood where there's a lot of thieving going on and still is a lot of thieving going on in the neighborhood, including by me, by the way. I was a horrible thief growing up as a child. I think at 13 or 14, somewhere on there, we found a, a, a bottle of whiskey that obviously had been stolen from the local off-license. I'm not sure what, you know, the, the pub where you go to get off-sales? I'm not sure what you guys call them. Like the liquor store. Kind of like the liquor store attached to the um, to the bar. They had obviously stolen it from. I know that because I used to do the shit all the time myself. Somebody had stolen a bottle of whiskey and stashed it in the bushes and we found it and so we proceeded to drink it. And it was kind of like for all of us who were in recovery we'll know that this is what I've been looking for. This is it. As our, I later found out in recovery I was, I was desperately trying to fill in that God-shaped hole in my soul with booze. That whiskey worked. God, I loved whiskey. I loved whiskey. I loved any hard liquor, but whiskey was definitely, whiskey was my friend. So that's when I first started to really start to get into, you know, serious drinking. Up until then, it was like, you know, just going out for a few beers and some wine and some cider. And, you know, you go out and kind of get goofy with your friends. And I did lots of that as well, mind you. But no, my serious drinking started on that day. And, you know, nobody told me it was going to get worse. But, oh, fuck me green. It got worse. It got to be a lot worse. How no, quickly did it get worse? No, that's such a loaded question because— Sure as shit is. That's yeah, why I asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The truthful answer is right away. <laughs> but, the, but the answers I told myself in my own brain was, this is great. This is fine. That's when I started drinking and started living that lifestyle of, you know, in Ireland, they call them corner boys. Fellas that hang out in the corner and, you know, you're, you're in a very poor neighborhood. You're in a project. You're, you're not doing much of anything except, you know, sitting around shooting the shit and, and getting drunk and getting high as much as you can whenever you can. My first introduction to drugs right around the same time. Oh, oh, oh. Over here, you guys in America, you, you sniff glue, right? Huffing glue. Well, this was a stuff called Thaw Pit. Thaw Pit was a spot remover. You put it into the cloth and you... <laughs> And you would get all fucked up. And I mean all fucked up. In hindsight, now I'm in recovery, I now recognize what I was really doing. See, when I was growing up, pretty much every alcoholic I've ever met, you don't feel good about yourself. You don't feel good about who you are. You don't feel good about what you are. You're uncertain of yourself. You're unsure. You don't fucking dare tell anybody this shit. God, fuck no. I didn't like the way I felt about myself. I didn't like the, I didn't, well, I didn't like feelings at all whatsoever on any level for that matter. What did you feel when you used those drugs and alcohol? Relaxed, relaxed, relaxed. A lot of people talk about being numb. That's that's what that's what a lot of people want. They just want to yeah. feel numb. Numb. Yes. At yes. the same time, you also get that. Ah, 
the euphoric, exactly, exactly. And absolutely, it's, and ab- the, the numbness is a big part of it too. Absolutely, yeah. you're killing off those bad feelings you got inside yourself. Absolutely, that's the heart and soul of my understanding of, of what alcoholism is for me as an individual. Normal life coming up for you was, mm. to put it <laughs> very, very gently, chaotic. It was absolutely oh, yeah. chaotic. Death, destruction. Death, destruction, conflict, violent alcoholic father. Growing up with myself and my four brothers, all of us criminals, and we were all fucking rogues. And you know me and you know who and what I am now. You know who a little bit about who and what I was then. And I always tell people, like, I'm a nurse now. This going to be part of what we're going to be talking about. I'd like to tell nurses that in my family... I mean, even now, I'm the good one. And That's we're gonna hard hear to this. fucking believe. No, in my family, I'm the fucking one that they would all kind of look and say, look, there's Mike. Mike's a good guy. We're going to talk about my family a lot. You remember your first drink of whiskey? Yes. There you are. How did that drinking progress? I want to know how your alcoholism came to be. You admittedly said oh. you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict. How did that progress? What did that look like for you? For me? The second I took that whiskey, I know at that point that trip had been switched. And there's no question for me whatsoever. Now, did I know what that meant? Did I know where it was going to go? Of course not. Who in the name of Christ says, I know what I want to do. I want to grow up and become a fucking sloppy alcoholic, passed out in a corner covered and pissing puke out in the field. That's what I want to do when I grow up. That's not what we do. That's what I became. I will also tell you blackouts. Let's talk about blackouts, shall we? Blackouts have been have been a regular part of my drinking, always have been. It was just part of the package. I can remember it was about 19 or 20, somewhere around there. I was living, you know, I was in Dublin living with, with my father. And, I'm, of course, I'm out there. And he, my father was a horrible drinker, too. Probably an alcoholic. Probably sure he was pretty sure he was an alcoholic. But I'm not going to diagnose him. Let him do that himself upstairs. I remember I once came across, uh, I was this time I was living in this little horrible fucking apartment the flat and the 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 flat was it was is a flat you know like a small apartment and it's supposed to be for one person with like you know the bed the kitchen and everything all in one room efficiency fancier a studio well or a studio yeah a yeah, studio yeah. apartment yeah well we call them a flat and it was myself and my brother and my four other best friends were all living in this place <laughs> <laughs> all of us all of us raging alcoholics. <laughs> and I can remember right around that time, um, I found this. It was Ireland's version of the 20 questions. And I'm like sitting there reading this thing and I'm going, and I'm going through the list. And of course, with all the honesty that I could muster at that time, which wasn't very much. But, you know, it was like, I think I got like, at that time, 12 out of, tw- out of 20 was correct, you know? Yes. And then it said at the end of it, it says, well, if you answer to three or more of these, you are Definitely an alcoholic. I answered yes to all 20 Did you when my dad gave me that list. Did you get the fuck out of here? Yeah, all 20. Like I said, only, only honestly I could muster. When I looked at it later, I was actually lying about shit. Whenever I did do the initial questions, yeah. I was 22. No, but the point being, the point of, of the story is that I remember looking at that, focusing specifically on blackouts. And I'm like going, for fuck's sake, what, what the fuck shit is this? John, 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 look. Here, look at see this here? Fucking blackouts, right? This hit fucking blackouts, definitely. John, you get blackouts when you drink, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Marty, Marty, you, you blackout too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul, you black yeah, Brian. Well fuck I know you fucking do. I remember focusing on it and thinking this is complete horseshit because everybody has blackouts when they drink. Everybody blacks out when they, and I honestly thought that I thought that everybody that drank would would, would black out is just part of what you do when you drink. And that's because everybody I drank with blacked out when they drank. 
took me to be in recovery to, to, to understand and have it pointed out to me by my sponsor that normal people don't do that. Normal people do not drink and then blackout. And blackouts are, when we get to the bottom part, to hitting your bottom. That is a very important part of my story, by the way, for my getting into the uh, the bottom part. But yeah, no, blackouts. Everybody has blackouts, right? I thought so. I thought so. A lot of alcoholics think that. Did anyone ever approach you and your five house flatmates about your drinking at that time? <laughs> yeah. Where can I get some more? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got a great story for you. You want to hear a great drinking story? Spit it. Okay. So, again, this is in Craig Avon, right? I was visiting um, another friend of mine. And, oh, Jesus, what was it? Paul. Paul, my God, Paul. This is the kind of, you know, the, your standard chaotic insanity, which is a regular part of my life growing up as, as, as an alcoholic. I was going to visit uh, my friend Paul. The projects is one thing. But the block projects are the fucking worst, as we all know. If you ever lived in poverty, you know the difference between a housing project and a block project, right? Paul lived in the block project. You know, it's where you kind of like, oh, we're, we're from the from the housing projects. These fuckers over here, they're, they're the real poor ones, you know? So Paul lived in this fucking, in this fucking little tiny little flat. And it was him and... Um, he was living there by himself. He had a little a flat, a little efficiency. But his brother was there. And his brother was like, I think 10, maybe? Pee-wee. His name was Pee-wee. And so uh, me and uh, John, my friend, my best friend John, he, John's dead now. Marty, Marty's dead now too. Paul, Paul, he's dead now too. Fuck, a lot of these people died. So anyway, the, the four of us went to go visit Paul. And Paul was there. And we're, you know, we we'd brought in a couple of cases again, us, and, you know, something or other, you know. We, oh, yeah, a bottle of Bucky, Buckfast. That's like gut rot wine. So we bought some some gut rot Buckfast wine. By the way, Buckfast, I gotta talk about Buckfast. Buckfast wine, when you held it up, you would see the sludge in the bottom of it. (laughs) (laughs) But as the man says, two bottles in your hula hoop. You know, you only need two bottles of shit and you're fucking gone, right? So anyway, um, so we, we ended up with, some, with, you know, a couple, couple of six packs and, and some, a couple of bottles of Bucky. Paul was there. And so Paul, and we're sitting there get, getting drunk out of our mind and you're doing our thing. And suddenly Paul goes, hey, hey, bye, hold on. Come on, here, Pee-Wee, come on, you and me. So they go. And we're like, what the fuck, you know? We're sitting there waiting for him. And about an hour later, Paul comes back with his, with his young brother, his young 10-year-old brother. Pee- yeah, Pee-Wee's dead too, for that matter. Jesus Christ, they're all fucking dead. Only the only one left alive of that group. Holy shit, I just realized that. Anyway, so, um, no, I think Paul, no, Paul's dead too. Yeah, Paul's dead too, yeah. So anyway, um, Paul and Pee Wee come back, and they have gone to, there's a, a local bar. It's a fucking shithole dive bar. The Tully Galley Tavern is what it was called. And they had broken into the back and stolen a case of whiskey. So we're sitting there with a case of whiskey. So now it's like, okay, now we're going to get a fucking serious drink on here. And we started tearing into this into this whiskey. And then all of a sudden, Paul's mother and father show up. And they are invited into the party. And so they start helping us drink this 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 case. And that's 12 bottles of fucking whiskey, by the way. I have very, very vague memories of the next part. I mean, apparently, um, I had passed out at one point, And they were using my body in, on the couch to block the cops from coming in. That's part of the story. <laughs> and that's where I woke up. But, but, but apparently... So, so, yeah, so we're out there getting drunk, and of course, when you're drunk, you're making a lot of fucking noise, and when you make a lot of noise, people call the fucking cops, right? And this is the, the, the police force in Northern Ireland where they're, these are the guys that are running the fucking death squads, so these are not good fucking cops. These two fucking cops show up. We call them filth, by the way, just for the record. They're not cops, they're filth. These two cops show up, right? And and they're, they're, they both have some machine guns, stain guns, right? And they're, 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 they're bulletproof vests. They're in a fucking rough neighborhood. They came in armored Land Rovers, right? That's how they came into our area. So 
So they apparently they came to the door. I'm going to do this because this is for an effect, right? So um, they came to the door, and next thing you know, open up the door. It's the police. Open the door. Police. Okay, I'm done with I'm done with that. Banging on the door. Next thing you know, Paul runs over to the door, drunk out of his mind. This is where I come to, right? <laughs> Paul <laughs> opens up the letterbox, just like the little letterbox, just the, you know, where you put your letters in. And he says, fuck off, you bunch of bastards. Fuck off. Fuck off. And he closed the fucking letterbox. And so they're like, boom, 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 boom. Come on, open up the door. We're getting complaints. Oh, no, that's right. Oh, no, that's a critical part of the story I forgot about. So part of the reason that, that they were called in is because Paul and his father get into a fight because we're all fucking drunk as monkeys. And so Paul and his father get into a fight. Paul's father pulls a knife on him, stabs him in the arm. Paul comes out, goes into his kitchen, comes back out. He's got two fucking steak knives in his hand to go at his father, right? This is the point when the police showed up going, boom, 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 open up the door. Paul then goes, he's distracted from killing his father to, he's going to kill the cops now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh my God, yeah. Oh yeah, and there was another, what the hell was that other fellow's name? There was another fellow that joined us later on, and he was wanted by the cops. He kicked in the back window to go jump out the window. And the car was right tumble over. He was trying to jump out. This is the standard day for me. This is just another day here in paradise here in, in Irish Mike land. Anyway, Paul's drip, blood dripping down the arm, two knives in his hand, and somebody opens up the door, right? And the two coppers stand there, and they just, like, look at this scene. And they're just like, just keep it down. We're getting complaints. And they walk away. <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a not uncommon daily occurrence in the life of this alcoholic and for the record um it was a lot of fun it's pretty exciting you know a lot of fun you get that you get lots of those adrenaline rushes which this dope fiend loves adrenaline rushes to this day that was just and that was just life that was just that's what happened that's what you did these are the kind of things you, that would happen i will tell you also as growing up in a family full of thieves including myself that at any given time when we were in, in california at any given time um, with the Mountain View Police Department. That's right down below San Francisco. It was guaranteed. I mean, guaranteed. There was at least one of the Cavalin boys was in jail at all times. I mean, it just never didn't happen. And more often than not, it was like two to three to four to five of us were in jail. Uh, good times. Good times. thought you'd appreciate that. And your listeners might appreciate the little story, too. So... This was just part of, of what you did. It was just part of the life. You know, is every alcoholic like this? No. Every alcoholic relates to the insanity. For me, it was, you know, growing up in the kind of neighborhood I grew up in, being growing up in, in, in the kind of very poor neighborhood I grew up in, in the part of the world that I grew up in. It was just, this was just part of life. It's what you did. At what point did you recognize or admit to yourself your drinking, your drugging was not normal? Because you said you looked at the 20 questions yeah. and you're like, yeah, yeah. I answer and this is a bunch of bullshit. With yeah. your friends. At what point, because you're sober today, you've been sober for over 30 years. Yeah. Obviously, at some point, you recognized that there was a fucking problem. Yes. Yes. When did you actually recognize that there was a problem? Well, so here's the thing. As, as an alcoholic, I had always had, you know, and by the way, for the record, I found out later that the only people who do this is alcoholics. Normal people don't say, well, if I do this, then I'll be an alcoholic because normal people don't even, their brains don't even go there. Give me an example. Well, for me, one of the big ones was if I drink 
even when I don't want to, then I'm an alcoholic. I always pushed the bar ahead. The behaviors was like, you know, you know you're know, you an alcoholic if, but this is the reason why I did that. An alcoholic is somebody who, who drinks wine in a park. Well, you know, when I was drinking wine in the park with the, with the bums, well, that was just because they were a b- bunch of nice guys, and I was a nice guy, you know. This kind of, of insanity that this alcoholic had going on inside of his brain of a series of self-justifications for where I was at. So I always had, like, in my brain a reason why it was okay. It was completely acceptable to be in San Jose Park drinking wine with the winos. Perfectly acceptable because they were nice. I was a nice guy, and they were just being very sharing with me their 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 wine. How can you say no to somebody being so generous with their wine? Especially if it's a nice red. Well, these guys didn't do the good stuff. <laughs> no, we're talking the winos, brother. We're talking the winos. At what point did you come to the recognition? You said you kept justifying. Yeah, There's all yeah. these justifications. When right. did the justifications end? When did you oh. admit or recognize? You don't even have to admit it. When did yeah. you recognize that you were indeed an alcoholic? Part of, um, oh God, let's, 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 let's go down this little road here, shall we? A part of my bottom, a big part of my bottom, actually. I had left Ireland and left my son in Ireland there, and I was I was devastated by that, and I thought at the time that I was doing the right thing for him. I kind of really was doing the best thing for him because I was a complete fucking disaster as a human being. His mother had found another man that she was married to. They had a bunch of kids, so it was like, well, my son doesn't need me, you know, and by the way, what the hell is he going to do with me anyway? And, but you know, so I decided to come back to America because, after all, the statute of limitations had passed. That's part of the story. I safely come back here to America. I'd done some very, very, very bad things, which would have put me in prison for a very, very long period of time. And I'm not going to tell you what those things are. I'll tell you personally, but it's another story, but not on the radio because Johnny Law is still alive and well. I'd done some, um, was wanted for some very, very, very serious charges, which would have put me in prison for a good 25 years. And um, I didn't want to go to prison for 10 to 25 years. I came back here to America, but this time, having the excuse or whatever the right way even to put that is, it killed my soul to be away from my son. And I recognized that it was definitely was the best thing for him because he didn't want, you wouldn't want me and who I was as a, as a person at that time as be part of your life. It broke me and it broke my soul. And I went on a prodigious, I mean, there's, there's the greatest excuse a drunk needs. Oh, my son. I'm this very noble person who's left my son in Ireland. And, and you know, he's got his happy life and I'm here crushed and broken. Oh my God. Here, give us another whiskey there, would you please? And then you get to play off the Irish thing because Americans love Irish people and they love playing for Irish drunks. So, you know, I had that whole little finagling, little manipulative bullshit going on. And during that period of time, I was also doing lots of drugs. As I later discovered, when I became a nurse, I actually started to really understand this, that I was going through drug and alcohol and do psychosis. Primarily booze. I did do a lot of drugs as well, but it was primarily dr- boost you know was, um, again I loved whiskey and or vodka or rum you know hard liquor was just my thing what did that psychosis look like so since you asked that question at that time I could just come from Ireland and I had met some people that I used to know before and they were into a particular religious cult called Christianity burn again they were burn again burn again Christians and they told me about this lovely story of how you know in Ireland you Catholics and Protestant you know very superficial view of the conflict you Irish, you know, we don't do Irish, you know, Catholic or Protestant things. We're just, we just believe in God and this is what we believe and you'll love it and come on in and come on into our cult. They were Pentecostalists for the record. They do this whole thing called love bombing, I found out later. Since we're traditions are not important here, we can go into this little area. They did the whole love bombing thing and I became a burn again Christian. Lord, brothers and sisters, I have seen the Lord. I've told you about this part. I've told some of my 
friends, my friends that I go see on Friday. This little story about how at that time I come from Irish Catholic poor white trash. Who's the kind of people that Irish Catholic poor white trash are the most comfortable with here in the United States, but with a strong criminal element to them? What kind of people are they most comfortable with? Outlaw bikers. I love the outlaw bikers and they love me. And I used to hang out this one little uh, biker bar called JWs. It's on El Camino Real in Mountain View, California. It was one of the last places where I had my last drink. Not the last one, but my last drink was at the one one club. I'm hanging out with these bikers here and, and I'm starting to get into the God and Christianity and I'm lowered and lordy, lordy, lordy. And the psychosis started to kick in. I started to understand, quote, air quotes here, folks, that God was giving me secret messages. And he was giving me secret messages everywhere. He was giving me secret messages in songs. And part of my of the insanity of my alcoholism was that um, I would go to this biker bar with the express purpose of converting the bikers to Jesus, brothers and sisters. I would preach in the word of God while I'm getting drunk out of my mind, while I'm all fucked up on meth, and I'm preaching the Lord to the bikers. That is, by the way, a very good dictionary definition of insanity. That is completely insane behavior. But I was convinced that, that I was being driven by this, you know, this this God that I had. And I've always, God's always been like a, sort of like an, an understanding for me, some sort of understanding of me. And that's why I love recovery because I don't have to believe your God. You don't have to believe mine. I don't need to give you my God. And you don't even have to call it God. Yeah. Remind me to tell you about the, about the doorknob story. Doorknob story. Got it. Doorknob story. Anyway, the point being is that I was in this biker bar and I'm, I'm preaching the word of God to, to the bikers and blah, 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 blah. And during that period of time, I started to kind of look at myself and go, you know, my, no, I, like I say, I had these series of like, if I do this, I'm an alcoholic. And then I changed the goalposts. Well, there was one that was like kind of a, can't really, really can't get past this one here. If I drink, even when I don't want to drink. See, I want to drink. I didn't like the consequences, but I wanted to drink. At this point, I was like doing this whole, if I do this, I'm going to become an alcoholic. I'll change the goalposts. And, but then it became up to, the, to the, the bottom line was that, you know, if I am drinking, even when I absolutely do not want to drink, when I'm drinking against my own will, oh, there's that word will, isn't it? Then I am an alcoholic. And that was kind of my little, and I started to do that a lot. And I'd start to go the whole, I'm living this lifestyle right now of drinking and drugs. And this obviously is not the right way of the Lord. The Lord does not, you know, it says here in the Bible, in the Bibli, the Bibli, God bless the Holy Bibli Bible, that, you know, thou shalt not do this and this and this and this. And so I started to kind of go, you know, this is really going against my lifestyle. If, if I'm trying to be a good Christian here and I'm doing this, then this is not right. So I'm going to stop drinking. By God, I'm going to stop. And this is part of my bottom story, by the way. So I did this for, I did that for about six months of like, I'm just going to stop. And of course, every alcoholic knows that story. No matter how it is you get to that place, you're doing the whole, no, this time, I'm no, I'm going to stop drinking. And then that weird, bizarre mental lapse happened every goddamn time. I'm not going to drink tonight. And then I go out somewhere, go out, you know, just one or, you know, or just, and it got even, it even was even weirder than that. It was, there was no, not even a, like, I probably shouldn't do this, but it was not, none of that. It was none of that, none of that, all those discussions, the rationals, the reasonings, the, the consequences, the da, 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 going to hell, all that, none of that, none of that mattered. And they talk in the big book about, in that big blue book that I've seen about that strange mental lapse where I just, I just drank. It wasn't a matter of not wanting to or not wanting to who were deciding to or fighting the urge. None of that crap. No, none of that existed. No, it just happened. And it happened over and over and over and over. A big part of my drinking, actually through a lot of my drinking career, but a lot of it towards the end, I would I would wake up in places where I was like, as I like to say, I, I on a regular basis, for the record, when I drank, I pissed myself a lot. I 
pissed myself. I pissed on beds. I pissed on couches. I would wake up on people's houses. I don't even know who these people are. I shit myself once. Ooh. <laughs> and my friend's girlfriend cleaned me up. Oh. <laughs> I woke up with somebody else's sweatpants on. Oh, that must have been intriguing. Yeah, I had to write a note question whether or not I had shit myself, even though I found my shit-covered jeans in the corner. In the corner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, hey, somebody else may have shit on them. You never know, man. That's true. I could have blamed it on somebody else. Absolutely. I was very good at blaming shit on other people. Just ask my sister. Yeah, yeah. Ask my sister's shit. They all took it. Or ask any alcoholic. We'll understand that (laughs) one. (laughs) So you piss yourself as an alcoholic? On a regular basis, and I'd work up in, in places covered in piss and puke. So I did that for a series of about six months of doing this where I really didn't want to drink and then would end up drinking now anyway. So you were without defense of the first drink. Bingo. I had always been without defense against the first drink. I just didn't know it. That's the thing. And I remember, oh God, I remember distinctly. I, again, I find this a lot later, you know, being a nurse. I know what really, 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 really got me was coming towards the very end where I would black out after two drinks. When you're an alcoholic and you do stupid stuff as a drunk, you know, you're like, you know, oh, you wake up and, you know, and blackouts are a pot of drink and it's just what you do. And you wake up in the morning and be like, all right, what did I do last night? Oh, God, Mike, it was, you were so stupid. You tried to punch that cop. You did this. You tried to bust in this window here. You did this. You did all this crazy, stupid stuff. And it was a regular sort of like, ha, ha, ha. What did, all right, what did I do last night? Oh, God, no, did I really do that? Oh, my God, I got, a, I got a great story. I'll have to tell you in a little bit. Coming up towards the end there. But the bottom line is that I remember I'd be like, okay, well, what did I do last night? And people would go, what do you mean? You were fine. That chilled me to my core. And I didn't even know why. I did find out later, again, being in the nursing program and becoming a student nurse that that's one of the signs of later stages of alcoholism and this goal got to do with the whole breakdown of the alcohol in the liver and blah 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 scared the hell out of me so then i started to really seriously do the whole okay i'm really gonna stop it now man really gonna stop and that that went on for like i say about six months of doing that and waking up the next morning and oh my god here we go again did it again oh my god okay okay tonight i'm not gonna do it and what I'll tell you my little story before I get to the bottom. <laughs> You'll really appreciate this story. <laughs> I mean, this is a horrible story, and it's hilarious at the same time. At the end, you know, I was drinking in biker bars and drinking in the park with the, with the park drunks. And it was a little, basically, the homeless yahoos. And there was a bar that we, that the homeless guys used to, the park rats, we call them. We call ourselves the park rats. And uh, we'd drink at this one bar. It was a t- horrible, dirty, divey little bar. I went in there one day, and I walked in, and I says, yo, hey, you know, barkeep, can't remember the guy's name now, but set me up with a, a shot and a bourbon, you know, or whatever it was I was drinking at the time. And the guy go up and he goes, the fuck are you doing here? I'm like, what? I go, what are, you, what are you doing here? I go, what do you mean? He says, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? I 86 to you last night. I'm like, what? Kick me out? What? What? What, what did I do? You don't remember. No, I, I don't. No, you really, really don't remember. No, I have no idea. What the hell are you do? He goes, fine, you fucker. Come back in a week. You're barred for a week. Turns out later, I found out that what I had done. <laughs> what I had done. We used to hold, there was this one part of the bar where like the pool table was at. It was like a little off room off to itself where the pool table was at. And apparently I walked in there drunk out of my mind. There was two barmaids that were um, working the bar. And one one of the girls comes and says, well, you have my girl. I said, run a drink for everybody. Because, you know, we drunks, we love to be hail fellow well men and we'll, people are loving us and we are generous, giving, loving people. And so I got a drink, a round drink for everybody. It was like about 10 people. And then the other barmaid came up and she goes, so what do you want? I said, a round drink for everybody. So that was two rounds come up, right? Got rounds raw, got, it was all done. Yeah, yeah, da, da. And so the girl comes up and goes, okay, so Mike, that'll be, you know, 54 or 49. I don't have any fucking money. And that's what I got 86 for from this little dirty, dinky little... <laughs> Bar where all the fucking park rats all drank at. 
back to the bottom. I always use the date of December 7th, 1985. The honest truth is I have absolutely no goddamn idea what my real sobriety date is. I just don't. I know roughly when it was. And it was somewhere around the first week of December. That's all I really know. So I used it December 7th, which I didn't even realize was Pearl Harbor Day. So, you know, the day that we started getting bombed is the day I stopped getting bombed, as I like to say. Yeah. <laughs> Did you pick that on purpose? No. No, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what the fuck December 7th was. I'm a fucking Irishman. What the fuck do I know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that. So, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's the first week of December. So we'll just go for the 7th, right? I had a series of, I had my, my, my dear friend, Paul, Paul, homeboy, I call him, we call each other homeboy, Paul C. We both drank the same way. We both were the same kind of drinker. We, that's why we got on so well together. We were always getting into legal scrapes together. That was just kind of part of the package. And so at, the, at that point, Paul was like kind of talking about how he had a drinking problem too. And I started saying, oh man, you know, I'm starting, you know, yeah, yeah. So we started to hang out together with the express purposes of trying to stop drinking together. Every time it came up to where, okay, Paul, I'm not going to drink tonight. It became a joke with us. Paul would just go, hey, Mikey, and he'd take out those little, those little mini bar, because he had a bunch of those from his, his father he used to steal them from somewhere. He'd clink and they go, clink, clink, hey, Mikey, clink, 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 they're calling to you. It's the good whiskey, Mikey. Come on, man. And so, of course, I would drink. Times where Paul would like be, no, Mike, Mike, I'm no, man, I'm serious, man. I need to stop this shit. This is just messing up my life too much. I'm going to stop. Of course, I'm like, Paul, <laughs> clink, clink, clink. And it became like a thing that we did for about the last couple of weeks of, weeks of our drinking. So the last night of our drinking, Paul and I both were like, both like saying, okay, this is it. We're not going to drink tonight. We're both not. Good. You know, we're not doing the clink, clink, clink. No, bro, good. We're serious. Good. Right on. And we went out. Two alcoholics who we used to go to this little coffee shop when we were like trying to get ourselves sober uh, just to kind of hang out and something to do, really. So we're like, going, well, what do you want to do? Well, let's go shoot some pool. Okay, well, where do you shoot pool? At a bar. Actually, specifically a bar called the 101 Club. Part of the story is that my brother, Brian had told me about this place that was at the old Mountain View High School and it was some sort of like some sort of a club and they had a pool table he told me this you know a few months back where this club was there and they had this they had a pool table there and they served coffee but they didn't serve booze that's all I really knew about this place right Paul and I both go out and we're going oh let's go to the 101 club well you take two alcoholics in a bar with a pool table that strange mental thing happened to us both and I remember waking up the next morning just like oh my god I'm sick oh my god I did it again oh my god I did it again Paul, what the fuck? We were both really, 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 no, we really, really, really didn't want to drink the time. No, really, we really didn't. And here we both are. Passed out on Paul's, I was on Paul's floor. Paul was in his bed, and floor in his living room. And his old man lived in there as well, which is a whole other crazy story. But his father was a horrible, God, he was a horrible alcoholic. I'm sure the man's dead now. So I woke up next morning. During this whole time, I was too, but I now recognize now what I was doing was, I was saying each time I was, I was going, okay, God, God, each time, is that God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I screwed up on you. I know it was really bad on me. And, you know, I'm really, I'm, next time, I promise you, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. This time, no, God, this time I really mean it. No, oh my God, God, I can't believe I did it. No, please, God, I'm not, I'm really not, I'm not going to do it this time. That morning, I woke up on the floor. I said, well, I have always called the, the true alcoholic prayer. And it was like, instead of me saying, God, I'm not going to drink, it was like, God, help. I can't do this. I don't know what to do. And it was the most heartfelt prayer I've ever had in my life. God, I don't, this isn't me saying I'm going to stop drinking for you. I I can't. I'm incapable of stopping. And I had reached finally that final point of, no, really, I, I'm drinking when I don't want to, no matter what. Woke up the next morning and I said to Paul, and I just goes, hey, Paul, I'm like, I'm like, oh, fuck, dude, we did it again. 
And he's like, oh, he's like, he's kind of looking at me like lost too. And he just goes, what, what the fuck do you do, you know? And I said to him, I said, I'll tell you what, Paul, my brother told me about this place. And all I know, and I remember specifically using these words, I said, Paul, it's over at the old high school. All I know is they've got a pool table there, and it's safe because they don't serve booze there. Those are specifically the words I said. And I walked into that particular club. It was a club of which there were a secret society of yahoos hanging out there. That was where I first got introduced to recovery, where it was explained to me the way to not drink is you just don't drink today. And that is a perfect segue, Mike. Alrighty. Irish Mike. Thank you for, honestly, thank you for sharing your experience. And now it is time to move on to some strength. Strength. Mike is about to get some help. We'll be right back. The following story told by Irish Mike is both true and extremely graphic. If this is not something that you wish to hear, please fast forward to the music. That Michael has picked Back Home in Derry by Christy Moore. The bird is the word. Bird? Oh, bird is the word. Okay. Bird is the word. All right. So, um, another story about telling things that are absolutely horrific, where there is uh, was at one time absolutely no emotional context to this whatsoever. I've, again, realized that in recovery, that is a, a defense mechanism that one develops with uh, dealing with traumatic situations. Um, I was about 16 years old, and no, I still hate cops, just for the record. Just putting it out there. Still hate cops. Always have, always will. Filth. Filth. The filth. You yes. Hate the filth. I hate the filth. Always have. There was um this is again in Ireland and there was a um our housing state, you know, the nice estates, the fucking projects, and uh, was the one next to us uh, was actually pretty much empty because it was one between a Catholic area and a Protestant area, so there wasn't a whole lot of people living in that one because they were like too close to each other, so there'd be tensions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um I heard a big old huge bang. I ran up and I was the first person at the sign at the site. I used to say it when I had told this story. I now say him. I rec- I now recognize it was a human being. So anyway, um, I got there and uh, there was a cop had stepped on a landmine. The landmine was was actually put um, underneath of a uh, a manhole cover. Very ingenious, good way to set up a booby trap. Uh, the cop was blown to pieces. I mean, literally blown to pieces. I remember um, there was like a telephone wire. And there was a leg a, a leg was hanging from the telephone wire. I looked up and on the it was it was actually was um, on the sidewalk in between two walls. Perfect place to do, to do a booby trap. All the force was contained in in the explosives. I looked up in the wall and the wall had like dots on it. You know victory to the IRA, you know, political graffiti. And there was a piece of shirt with a piece of flesh attached to it. And again, I'm the first person to see nobody else was there. I'm 16 years old. I fucking hated the cops. I mean, fucking hate. They ran death squads, so, you know, every good reason to, to hit these, these these filth. So I remember I, I ran up to it, um, saw that, that piece, uh, I saw a piece of, of this man on the wall with the, shirt, the blue shirt, which is the color shirts they wore, took that piece of uh, of shirt and human skin from this man who had just been blown to pieces. I looked at him. He used to say it. I looked at him. I laughed at him. I spat on him. I threw him to the ground. And I walked away. At one time when I told that story, it was a very much of a very automatic mechanic. No. I mean, the one thing that alcoholic doesn't want to feel is feelings. You know, that's kind of why he fucking drank. 
part of it. There was absolutely no no emotions attached to either one of those stories. Um, you know, I found out later that, you know, those are fucking horrific things to happen to you as a child. <laughs> you know, like that sort of shit's not supposed to happen as a child. I've also seen other things, by the way. Um, shootings, uh, soldiers shot in the head. Um, we would have bombs go off inside of uh, bars and spray with machine guns. I was, one time I was right outside when they did that in Dungan. You know, all these things are, are, are things which, you know, is not normal for a normal, happy, healthy, sane child to be going through. But these are the part of the experiences I had growing up in the north of Ireland. So, there. By the way, I have feelings about them now. As always here on Authentic, and keeping authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you add on today's program. First, you hear what you always hear. Madness by Muse. And then we got into Michael's pick. To take us off into the night sky, you are going to hear Back in Derry by Christy Moore. Remember, be good to yourselves. It is ever so important. In we sailed out to sea Out from the sweet town of Derry For Australia bound, if we didn't all drown The marks of our feathers we carried In the rusty iron chains we cried for our wains Our good women we left in sorrow As the mainsails unfurled, the curses we heard And the English and thoughts of tomorrow at the mouth of the foil, bid farewell to the soil As down below decks we were lying For Doherty screamed, walking out of a dream By a vision of bold Robert Dyer The sun burned cruel as we dished out the gruel Dan O'Connor was down with a fever Sixty rebels today, bound for Botany Bay How many will reach their receiver? As our bow fought the swell Our ship danced like a moth in the firelight White horses rode high As the devil passed by Taking souls to hell